Uh, not long ago, I was uh, having a conversation with a friend of mine, and uh, this friend of mine gave me this piece of advice that I thought was amazingly profound and, and, and something that, I, that you know, but you didn't, don't always think about. And the piece of advice was this, was don't give simple answers to complex problems. Don't give simple answers to complex problems. And in many ways, I think this seems obvious because, you know, often the, the problems that we face have layers to them, don't they? There, there is background information. There's complicating factors. And so when somebody comes up to you and they offer you an, a, a, a solution that sounds like, hey, have you tried unplugging it and plugging it back in? You just want to kind of pull your hair out because you're like, of course I had. There's just, you just don't know everything that's involved in what I'm trying to deal with right now. It, it, you know, real life is complicated. It can be complex, and, and nice, neat, simple answers don't often get at the heart of what is really going on. In fact, as we look at many of the issues that we might be dealing with as individuals, or issues that we're dealing with as a society, we would be wise to recognize that there are just layers to things that defy simple answers. Here's an example. Victoria Park here in Kitchener, Ontario, there's a, there's a statue of Queen Victoria that has been defaced four times since July of last year. Four times. Now, what is the solution to what is going on here? Well, some folks would suggest that you've got to put a barrier around it. We need to increase security, and maybe we need to up the budget for cleaning. Well, other folks would say, hey, you know what we should do is we need to take the statue down, and we need to rename the park. Now, there might be, you know, elements of those, any of those solutions that could be a part of the final solution, but the, but the reality is this is a complex situation. And in order to get to the heart of what's really going on, it's going to take time. It's going to take hard conversations because in the background of this is a legacy that continues, to, that it goes beyond a statue, but a legacy that continues to impact people today, and that is the real issue. And that defies simple answers. It's more than just taking down a statue. It's more than cleaning it up. It's more than security. There is something complicated in the background there that is more than just simple talking points. And this is just one example, something happening at the societal level, but we, we've experienced complexity. We experience complexity in our personal relationships all the time. You know, where we look around us at the people sitting at our dinner table or the people at our workplaces and you say, wow, we're all coming at this thing from a totally different perspectives. Look, we just had a provincial election, right? If you had a conversation about that with people at work or at school or at home, you could have three or four or whatever multiple, uh, you know, perspectives on that because we all come at things differently. And if we're wise, we realize that what is needed is a certain relational skill to avoid relational disaster. And so we might find ourselves saying, man, how are we going to navigate the complexities of real life? How do we do that? And as followers of Jesus, we have this ad additional layer to this. Is how are we going to represent Jesus? How are we going to live out our faith in, in these, in, with the complexities that we face, or this, these difficult times? Now, I don't know if this is comforting or not. I mean, it probably isn't, but here you go. Uh, you know, facing complexity is nothing new. This has been happening for a long time. And if we look back at what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, we, we hear Jesus telling them, hey, guys, you guys are going to be my witnesses to your neighbors, to your enemies, to the entire world. And we should also hear them kind of say, whoa, that's a big assignment. How on earth are we going to do this? 
And part of that, like, whoa feeling is the fact that real life is complicated. And all around them, there are ideologies that were at work in their time that were often in conflict with one another, that would make living this out hard and not easy. For example, you had the Pharisees, some of those religious folks who would have said, hey, you know what? The way to God's favor is by following the rules. If we just follow the rules to the T, we'll be good. And then there were other people who had a different approach. They said, well, you know what? Why don't we just cozy up to those people in power? If we do that, we're going to find success for ourselves. And then there were some extremists who kind of said nuts to anything you guys are saying here. You know what we need? We need to burn this thing down. We need a revolution. People need to die in order to make this happen. And you know what? And a couple years after Jesus and his disciples, they did that. And it didn't turn out so well. And then there were comp- the competing cultures that existed. There was the Jewish culture uh, with all of its religious observances and beliefs. So there, there was one God. And then there was the dominant culture of their time, the invading culture, the Roman culture, with all of its excess and its pantheon of deities that included Caesar and the expectation that people would honor Caesar and treat Caesar, Caesar as if he was a god himself. And so how does a Jesus movement start? How does a Jesus movement take its first steps with all of this going on? Where do they even begin? These, these points of view, these perspectives, these ideologies have conflicting values and expectations. How do you even get going? And so you can, you can appreciate that these first disciples would have felt very overwhelmed fearful. What do they do? But the good news is that Jesus isn't telling them that they have to go do this on their own. Rather, he tells them to go and wait for the gift that the Father is going to send them. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And this promise was good news for them and is good news for us today too. And so the big idea that we're going to explore this morning is that the Holy Spirit helps us engage the mission of Jesus in in the complexities of life. That the Holy Spirit helps us engage in the mission of Jesus amidst the complexities of life. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. And so we're just going to pause and we're going to hear Acts chapter 2 read for us now. Good morning, West Heights. Today we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly... A sound like the billowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents from Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, 
we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now, uh, true to form, um, we're not going to get to everything in this passage. We just, we just can't. Um, but I'm going to begin with three quick observations. And maybe this is the cue to, to you, to those watching at home, uh, to those here in person, that if you have questions about the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit this week, and next week will sort of be a theology 101 of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you have questions about the Holy Spirit, you can send those to us through our, our communications channels of our blog and our email that goes out this week. There's a form there where you can send us your questions about the Holy Spirit because uh, in a couple of weeks, we are going to use at least one of our teaching times to go through and to answer a whole bunch of those questions that you might have about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we're looking forward to doing that. But three observations from Acts chapter 2 before we kind of get into uh, the main part of what we're focusing this morning. And the first observation is that our experience with the, whole, with the Holy Spirit might include waiting. It might include waiting. Um, Pentecost generally is thought to happen about 10 days after the ascension of Jesus. This means that Jesus' followers heard Jesus say, go and wait for the Holy Spirit. And then they had to wait about 10 days for that to actually happen. And they're waiting for something that they probably don't actually know exactly what it's going to be. So you can imagine them kind of waiting and being like, was that it? Was that it? I don't know. And then some people are like, did we miss it? And the doubt might creep in and uncertainty might creep in. But they had to wait for this, uh, this experience of the Holy Spirit. But this right here can serve as a reminder that waiting can be a part of our story as followers of Jesus. And that in waiting, we may actually experience something that we, we haven't expected, we weren't expecting to happen to us. And so waiting is a part of our story. Second observation is that our experience with the Holy Spirit might be hard to put into words. In what we had read for us this morning from Acts chapter 2, this, this Holy Spirit coming is described as something that sounded like a blowing wind and something that looked like flames of fire. It sounds like and it looks like. The language here isn't about describing things with precision so much as trying to describe something that's really hard to describe. There is a God thing happening here, and there's a, an attempt to put into language in a way that we might understand using visualizations that it sort of looked like this, and it sort of felt like this. As we reflect on our own experience with, with God, and as we reflect, on our, we reflect on our own experiences with the Holy Spirit, the reality is that we might find these experiences hard to explain, hard to put into words with precision. We, we know that something was real, we know that something was life-changing, but because it's a God thing, ordinary language might fall short of trying to capture fully what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Third observation, our experience with the Holy Spirit might not look like this. You know, something that I wish that we had time to unpack is that the the way that Luke is telling us about this event is all about trying to tell us that something that God is doing something brand new for the first time. It's about something that is starting it powerfully in that moment. And what this means is that we shouldn't necessarily think that what we have read here in Acts chapter 2 will be our exact uh, experience ourselves. Yeah, some of us might and will have dramatic encounters with the Holy Spirit, but the purpose of what we just read here this morning is not to ex uh, describe an experience that we all should have or we all will have, 
Rather, its purpose is to describe God's actions in one particular time, in one particularly important time. Now, this last point kind of moves us back to where we want to go this morning. Again, we're talking about how the Holy Spirit helps us engage the mission of Jesus 